It's now my pleasure to um, introduce the, my co-chair, who needs no introduction because she's been uh, introducing uh, talks and participating already, Annie Lukemeyer, who is a um, associate professor of medicine at uh, UCSF San Francisco General Hospital. I still can't call it the Z word. Um, and, um, and it really embodies, I think, uh, what all of us aspire to. Um, someone who's not interested only in HIV, but has an HIV practice, and does research and cares for people who are HIV infected, but also other viral diseases. In particular, has had an uh, interest in, in, uh, in uh, hepatitis C, um, not only in her HIV infected patients, but in the general population. And she's been really instrumental in looking at other infections in certain populations that we always don't consider. We heard recommendations early on about screening for tuberculosis infection in at-risk populations. And so she, really her areas of interest and expertise and research really span a lot of what all of us identify as uh, ongoing issues in our own practice settings. Um, Dr. Lukemeyer has been asked to speak on the 10 updates in liver care for the HIV provider. Note that this doesn't just mean the HIV-infected patient and his or her provider, but uh, in the HIV provider that we should be addressing um, in the course of our own practices. So let's turn it over to Dr. Lukemeyer. All right, so thanks for sticking with uh, me to the end of the day. Um, and uh, I'll have to figure out which one of these is which. These are my um, disclosures. Um, and my goals today are first and foremost to give you a talk that involves hepatitis C that doesn't make you want to like run away and be like, oh, I can't deal with this. There's too many blah, blah, beers and this is too confusing um, because I think we're, we're at a place where it's becoming more and more simplified, uh, which is great. So we're really crystallizing. Drug development is basically over. Uh, we know what we're going to use. It works really well. Um, so to have you feel like you have the tools, whether or not you're the one who's treating the patients yourselves, but to feel like like, okay, this is starting to make sense. I know what I'm doing. Here's a framework. Um, and to not feel like, ugh, I hate hearing all those words, and they're just going to come up with new ones next time. So I want to describe the two most commonly used hep C um, uh, antivirals and some sort of key considerations to think about with the hep C co-infected population. I'm going to talk about fatty liver disease, which is just an enormous problem, um, no pun, um, for our uh, both HIV-infected and non-HIV-infected <coughs> populations, and then talk about the new um, hep B vaccine uh, and some considerations um, for use and a little bit about hep B in our population. And did anybody see that very cool New York Times article about finding hepatitis B in a 7,000-year-old fossil? So very cool. So the oldest virus that they've ever been able to find. I'm sure that they've you know, obviously been around for a very long time. But we've been living with these hepatitis viruses for a very, very long time. Um, so, But we're finally starting to conquer them, which I think is very exciting. OK. Um, oh, so they skipped the first one. Hold on. This turned into just sort of a jammed in there ARS question, but that's all right, I will read it. So this is a 32-year-old gentleman. Um, he's a man who has sex with men. He's a genotype uh, 1A treatment-naive non-serotic. And he's got HIV that's well-controlled, and he's taking darunavir, ritonavir, and uh, TAF-FTC. He's on methadone, he uses speed occasionally, and he uses condoms some of the time. Um, and he wants to get his hep C treated, and the question is, what do you treat him with? Um, and uh, I'm going to use some of the trade names um, so that you know what they are along the way. So glucaprevir pabrentosphere, which is Maverick. Would you use sofosbuvir velpatosphere, which is Epclusa? You would treat him, but you're going to refer him out because this just is not within your scope of practice. You can't get um, uh, meds for patients like this because he's not cirrhotic, um, mm. and you can't get meds for non-cirrhotics. Or no, you just wouldn't treat him at all because you're too concerned about his risk for reinfection because he's having unprotected sex and he's um, using drugs. I didn't tell you how he's using drugs, but you're concerned um, that he may carry a risk there. So which, which one of these? Can we do eye benefit or do you benefit? Okay, okay, okay. Okay, good, thank you. Okay, so, all right, interesting. So 50% of people said Softvel or Epclusa, 30% said Maverick, 13% refer out, 
Nobody said that they can't get the meds, so this is great, and if I gave this talk in a different state, the answer would be different, and I have a very exciting update that I'm gonna share shortly. Um, and, and not that many are concerned about the risk for reinfection. So this was the answer um, that's right. Uh, Sofosbuvir, Velpatosphere, we're gonna talk about why. But let me take a step back, because I just jumped right into treating patients um, in clinic. So let's take a step back and talk about who and how to treat. Sorry, this was supposed to be a, uh, not give it to you all at once, so it wouldn't feel overwhelming, but. They're, the slides are doing what they want today. So just a reminder that the AASLD, IDSA guidelines, and many other guidelines um, from different uh, groups have basically come out and said, look, we now have the data that supports treating everybody, um, regardless of fibrosis, um, unless they're gonna die from something else very shortly that can't be fixed by treating their hepatitis D. So that makes it easy, okay? We, they're no longer like, well, maybe treat these people, but don't treat these people. The data support treating everyone. So that's great. And the reason for this is that we now have good data to support that cure reduces mortality. So people live longer, even if they don't have cirrhosis, they live longer if you cure their hepatitis C. They have less liver-related mor uh, morbidity, and they have less non-liver-related morbidity. It's a little bit like HIV. It took us a long time to get beyond just thinking about the infection-related uh, complications of HIV, but now we know HIV affects the brain, it affects the heart, the liver, and the kidneys. Hepatitis is the same thing. Hepatitis C is the same thing. Yes, it affects the liver, and yes, we care about the liver, um, but it's an inflammatory disease that goes all over the body, it has implications for the brain, raises the risk of stroke and heart disease, um, so it goes to re stands to reason that you're going to benefit the person systemically um, by curing them of their hepatitis C. Um, so even in those who have a minimal uh, fibrosis and it's cost effective. Um, so we need to counsel people about their risk for reinfection. Reinfection happens, um, so you can be reinfected with hep C many times. Having an antibody is not curative or is not protective, um, but the truth is, is that the rates of reinfection in general are low. It's not a reason to withhold treatment, and there are many things that we do in medicine that are ineffective when we start. What if we didn't encourage anyone to quit smoking because it doesn't work for most people? Boy, I'm excited if I get one out of ten people to quit smoking, but I try with all of our patients, and the truth is is that reinfection rates are low, and the thinking around this has really started to shift, and some thought leaders in the field say things like, well, if you're not seeing reinfections, then you aren't pushing the envelope and treating people who are the highest risk patients, who are the ones who are really driving this epidemic. So seeing reinfections is a sign that you're really pushing the envelope and treating the people who need to be treated. Um, and then just a reminder of where and how to treat these patients. We have increasing data um, and real-world experience to tell us that you don't need to be a hepatologist or an infectious disease doctor to treat hep C, particularly for straightforward, um, uncomplicated patients. A lot of HIV docs do this. A lot of primary care doctors do this. Um, you don't have to be a doctor to do this. You can be a nurse practitioner or a PA. Um, you just need to know what you're doing and get the, get the help that you need. And I find having um, worked a lot to train primary care uh, providers um, in this area, many of them tell me now that it's the most satisfying part of their job. So I was really struck by, um, you know, the comments about primary care providers and that we have a decreasing pool. We have to find things that we like to do, and there's nothing that's more fun than curing someone of something. And we don't get to do that very much, and I've found that it, with my patients, it's been a real springboard for building trust and positive change in other areas that if I start by curing them with some of something, then it's a lot easier to make other uh, changes down the road, where if I start with, you need to quit drinking, you need to um, stop using your injection drugs, and you need to use condoms before I'll treat your hepatitis C, that doesn't always get to that place. And sometimes I never get to that place anyway, but at least I've gotten their hepatitis C treated. So it's been a really positive springboard for change. So this slide is wrong as of today, which I'm so excited about. So they uh, just released uh, the new budget, which is gonna have 70 million extra dollars in California. My apologies to those of you who are not from California. And they've removed the fibrosis restrictions. So one of the questions that comes up all the time is great, you say that we should treat people, the data support it, but I can't get these medications. So we're lucky, at least in California, to have very progressive Medi-Cal guidelines that used to say um, that you had to have fibrosis stage two or greater on a scale of zero to four, four being cirrhosis, or a whole list of exceptions to that, meaning that you didn't have to have fibrosis if you had one of these. And these included um, situations where there was a, a increased risk for liver disease progression, right, like insulin resistance, type two diabetes, renal failure, or an increased risk for transmission, active substance use or high-risk sex, um, men who have sex with men, which they didn't define what that was, or symptomatic hepatitis C disease, so cryoglobulinemia or debilitating fatigue, which, again, they don't really define, so that applies to probably half of the people in this room at this point in time. You don't have to raise your hand. 
But um, what they have now said is they've gotten rid of this fibrosis restriction, um, and this should go into effect hopefully um, with the new uh, budget cycle, but they just released this today. So it's really exciting. Um, so this is really getting closer to the AASLD um, guidelines, basically saying that everybody deserves um, to be treated um, as long as they're not going to die uh, um, in less than 12 uh, months from um, something that's not hepatitis related. This is not the case in every state around the country. There are still states that have sobriety requirements, um, which are not evidence-based, and fibrosis requirements, which are not evidence-based. So if you don't practice in California, I would uh, refer you to the National Viral Hepatitis Roundtable. They have a really good grading state by state, which tells you what your current state um, um, guidelines are. So getting access to the medications, at least for patients who are on Medi-Cal, um, and many private insurance follow Medi-Cal, but not all of them, has really stopped being a barrier. So we need to do a better job in testing folks so we know who we need to treat letting them know that they should be treated. We sent them the message for a long time, no, no, you can't be treated, you, you, insurance won't pay for it, or you use injection drugs, you can't be treated. We need to change that messaging because we, we educated people, uh, and now we have, to un, we have to undo that piece and then make sure that they get treated and cured. Okay, so if we're gonna do that, how do we do it? Um, this is the new treatment landscape. So this is really my, num my number one story. And so this says, my desire to be well-informed is currently at odds with my desire to stay sane. So that's how sometimes I feel about just opening the paper in the morning, but also about the hepatitis field. So I'm gonna try and pare this down to really, I think the two things that you need to know. So this is Winston Churchill giving the victory sign, but I've also reinterpreted it as the two drugs that you really uh, need to know. <laughs> if you want to know more, you can go to the Hep C guidelines. There are many other medications that are out there, but I'm giving you, I really think what I think is a pragmatic view of what we're prescribing now. Okay, wow, starting with the lines, there we go. So these are the guidelines, um, and I will, uh, so there are multiple drugs that are out there, but the two ones that we really use now are glucaprevir preventosphere, which I'm gonna abbreviate as GP, but it's also known as Maverick, and then cefospivir velpatosphere, which is no, known as, I'm gonna call soft vel, but it's known as efclusa. There is ladipasphere cefospivir, which is an older formulation that we use sometimes for drug-drug interactions, and then there's elbosphere grizoprevir, which used to be known as Zepatir. It is still known as Zepatir, but we just don't use it as much for a variety of reasons. Okay, so the second story. So GP, this is the new player on the block, okay? So this is a combination of a hep C protease inhibitor and an NS5A inhibitor together in one pill. Um, and even though they're together in one pill, you need to take three pills a day, unfortunately. The good news is that it's pangenotypic. So remember, hep C comes in six flavors, one through six, but this works for all six flavors, so that's terrific. Whether you need to still genotype people is an area of debate. I will say that for genotype threes, if they're cirrhotic, there's still some considerations there. Um, so in general, we still do genotype people, but we may be moving away from that. So it's eight weeks um, for patients if they're treatment naive and non-serotic, including hepatitis, um, including HIV positives. If they have cirrhosis, it's 12 weeks of therapy. So that makes life really simple. Eight weeks for everybody if they don't have cirrhosis. We didn't have that as an option before this. And, and which was somewhat surprisingly, this is now the least expensive option that's available. The wholesale acquisition price is $26,000. No one pays $26,000, um, but this is the cheapest um, uh, uh, medication there. And then most most insurance has negotiated to come in at a price um, that's, under, that's underneath that. I'm not saying that these medications are cheap. This is still a lot of money to pay, and it causes a burden on the healthcare system. But I will also point out that when you um, weigh this in a cost-benefit ratio, uh, that the benefits accrue very quickly um, when they're amortized over time, um, that these are cost-effective treatments. So for so long, we've had this knee-jerk reaction of hep C drugs, too expensive, $1,000 a pill, right? Like all the things you hear at the cocktail party. I think with the approval of this drug and the changing of the healthcare landscape, we really need to stop thinking about that, um, about it that way. Many HIV medications are more expensive. The cancer drugs, rheumatology drugs are more expensive. Um, this is no longer like the most expensive medication that we have. So, so we need to move on from that thinking. Um, Glucaprevir preventosphere and HIV, do we have data? Yes, is the answer. And so in looking at uh, one study where they provided it eight weeks to people who were non-serotic, 12 weeks to those who were serotic, it wasn't a huge study, but they had about 130 in the non-serotic and about 16 in the serotics. And what you saw is an excellent cure rate, very similar to what we see in people who don't have, um, uh, don't have HIV. So a 99% cure rate um, across the board, and that's terrific. So what I usually tell patients is, you have a 99% 
chance of getting cured. I never tell people that it's 100%. And I also tell them that, and this is true, and I will maybe someday I'll be wrong, I've never met anyone I couldn't cure of hep C eventually. So even if you're one of those unlucky, you know, one to 5% of people who can't get cured, we can get you cured. So I wanna give them a really positive, you know, message um, starting up front, the things that they can do to improve their chances of getting cured are taking the medicines every day and, and letting us know if there's any uh, uh, new medications that might be a drug interaction there. So what do you have to think about when someone's gonna be getting GP if they have um, uh, uh, HIV or if they don't? So the good news is it can be given in renal failure, so with a creatinine clearance of less than 30 and uh, all the way down to people on frank dialysis. And this is without ribavirin. So it was a pain to give ribavirin with people with renal failure. You do not have to give ribavirin with GP at all, and you can give it in people on dialysis, so that's terrific. It can be given um, to people who are taking acid blockers. So there's some PK data to suggest that this is problematic, but then they looked at um, large groups of patients, including those who were on PPIs at 40 milligrams twice a day, and they did not show any difference. So I usually tell people, hey, look, let's try to ramp down your PPI while you're on therapy if they can. And I think in general, we're all trying to ramp down PPIs just because they kind of get stuck on it, and why are you really taking this medicine for years and years? Maybe it's good for your microbiome. Um, so whoa. <laughs> well, I was listening this morning. Um, so I try to limit it, but it's okay to get PPIs, and there's some people that you can't come down in their PPI, and Maverick is fine. There's no need for hep C resistance testing, so an earlier combination of a PI and an NS5A inhibitor, the, the Zepatir combination, was a real headache for some, um, for some of us because you had to do resistance testing a priori in genotype 1A patients. You don't have to do that, um, so no resistance testing. You almost never have to do resistance testing anymore with any of these regimens, which is really good news because it delayed therapy, it was a pain to interpret, and it was expensive. It's active against some hep C resistant strains, which is one of the reasons that you don't have to do resistance testing. But the main limitation here, besides drug-drug interactions that I'm gonna talk about in a second, is there's concerns about advanced cirrhosis. So people who have current or prior decompensated liver disease, this is not a good drug for them. And so if they have child's pew um, B or C, it's not okay to use. If their child's A cirrhotic and they've never been decompensated in the past, it's okay to use, um, but you just want to be aware of that, um, and you do need to use it for 12 weeks. Okay, so what about the drug interaction? So um, two really good resources here. So this is from the University of Liverpool, um, and I included the uh, link down below as well as in the resources at the end. Um, there's also a very nice drug-drug interaction chart that Jennifer Kaiser put together that's in the hep C um, guidelines, um, and they tend to update these uh, pretty, uh, pretty uh, uh, routinely. So it's okay to give GP with most of the drugs, so you can give it with all of the integrase inhibitors, all of the NRTIs. We don't have good um, data for co-administration with the boosted PIs or cobacistat-boosted um, uh, 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 darunavir. So uh, it's still listed as no data in most of the guidelines. It's probably okay, but I've stayed away from doing this, and you can't do it if the patient is cirrhotic. Um, so that's one of the limitations uh, that, that we have here. Uh, we really would like to have uh, more data on this, um, but there's really been an absence of any uh, 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 clinical data, so I think we need to stay away. You cannot use um, GP with efavirenz, with etravirine, or with um, atazanavir. It's just an absolute contraindication due to a drug-drug interaction. Now, most folks aren't on those medications, but again, something just to be aware of. Okay. Sofosbuvir velpatosphere, which is really the other drug that we end up using. Um, and remember that GP was a protease inhibitor and an NS5A inhibitor. This is an NS5A inhibitor um, and a nuke. Um, so it's sofosbuvir and velpatosphere together, and sofosbuvir was one of the first drugs that we'd had. It's also pangenotypic. There's some limitations that you have to think about with genotype 3 patients with sofosbuvir velpatosphere I'm not going to get into, um, but in general, you can give this to everybody. Um, it's one pill once a day for 12 weeks. So you cannot shorten therapy. Even if people are non-serotic and easy to treat, they tried doing that in phase 2 studies, and it didn't, it didn't work. So don't shorten therapy. You can't do that with, uh, with uh, softvel, unfortunately. You can give it to a creatinine clearance of 30, and this is due to the sofosbuvir metabolite going up at a creatinine clearance of less than 30. It doesn't really cause problems, and so there are some data sets supporting, they're small, supporting the use of sofosbuvir-based regimens in people with renal failure, but in general, I would stay away from this and use an agent like GP if you can, but if you absolutely have to, you can do this um, in, in renal failure. 
You don't need resistance testing, and in general, you don't need ribavirin um, with uh, softvel, so things have gotten a lot easier. And unlike GP, you can use this in decompensated uh, uh, hepatic disease. I think if you're in that place, I would really recommend that you do this in conjunction with a liver specialist, because those are folks who can get quite sick and might need a transplant. But the good news is, is that now we have treatments for people. Uh-oh. That's a weird alarm. Sounds like a bird or something. Um, the good news is that now we have treatment for people who have, you know, frank renal failure and on dialysis, so that's GP. We have treatments for people who have very advanced liver disease, including history of decompensation, and that's softvel. It's more expensive. The wholesale acquisition price is $74,000, so it's three times more expensive. So what you're going to see in most insurance is that they prefer you not to use this agent. And many of us have had to kind of fight to keep this agent on the books because of drug-drug interactions with some of the HIV medications. Like I mentioned, you can't really use GP with the protease inhibitors with the data that we currently have, but you can use um, Softvel. So when would you use Softvel um, instead of GP? Well, really, it's driven for me mostly by ART compatibility because we do have data supporting use with the ritonavir-boosted protease inhibitors and COBE-boosted protease inhibitors, including atazanavir. But similar to GP, you can't use it with efavirenz and you can't use it with etravirine. Only soft lead is compatible um, with those uh, drugs. Now, again, most of us don't have people on efavirenz and etravirine, but sometimes you do and sometimes you can't make that change. Remember that the tenofovir levels, if you're giving it as TDF, can go up with softvel. This is not an issue with TAF-based um, formulations, but again, if you have someone on tenofovir for whatever reason and you're worried about their renal function, maybe that's not a good drug for them to be on, but you'd be more concerned when you put them on softvel. As I mentioned, it can be used in decompensated cirrhotics, but it should not be used with acid blockers. Now, the package insert says that you can give up to 20 milligrams of omeprazole or its equivalent. Um, I really stay away from using acid blockers at all with Softvel because the levels really go down, and I think it's the safest thing to do just to tell patients, look, let's really do our best to get you off of this, and if you have to use an H2 blocker separated by 12 hours, that's fine, but, but let's have your best shot at having this work because it is definitely an acid-sensitive medication. Okay. So I just said you only need to know two drugs, and now I'm telling you a third drug. But I'm not going to tell you in detail, and I just like this picture of Muhammad Ali, who has nothing to do with hepatitis C, but he is showing us a three. So <laughs> this is important because we have a good, I told you that we now have good salvage for patients. This was another area of hard-to-treat uh, folks where we'd be like, oh, boy, but you, you unfortunately had... Uh, you know, sofosfavir-based uh, therapy fail you, and now it's all complicated, and you need to take ribavirin and get drug resistance testing. It's gotten a lot easier. So Softvelvox is three medications together. So it's basically Softvel that I just told you about with a third agent added on, which is a protease inhibitor. It's all combined into one pill, and it's 12 weeks once a day with no ribavirin. So really, in general, you don't need to use ribavirin anymore, which is a big relief. Ribavirin stinks. Patients don't like it, and neither do providers. Um, and we use it for treatment failures, including those who have failed these NS, uh, NS5A-based regimens or protease inhibitor regimens in the past, and it's got a very high cure rate. People do great with this. But because it is basically soft vel with something else added on, you can't use it in decompensated liver disease. So if you have people with very advanced liver disease who failed previous regimens, you're going to need to reach out and get help from a, from a liver spe specialist. But luckily, this is pretty uncommon. Um, you can give it with darunavir ritonavir or darunavir cobacistat, but you can't give it with other HIV uh, protease inhibitors. Um, so again, there's some really good tools to inform you about what the drug-drug interactions are online. So just know that those are out there and just double-check that. Um, um, if you uh, are treating these folks on your own or if they're getting treated in a referral setting, I still find that we have to be really careful about our HIV patients and the drugs that they're on because other people may not check as well and they feel about the HIV drugs the way maybe you feel about the hep C drugs, which is, oh, I don't know, I'm hoping somebody's taking care of that. So double check and make sure that, that there's not a drug-drug interaction if you're not the one prescribing the medications. So those are the three drugs that you need to know. There are not likely going to be new hepatitis C drugs. The pipeline has really shut down. We're hopeful that there's going to be injectables um, coming if we can pressure uh, pharmaceutical companies enough. But these are really the ones that we're going to be using for the foreseeable future. Um, so if you get comfortable with these, I promise they're not going to be changing um, anytime soon. So hopefully this inspires you to get your patients um, hooked up to care or even to consider starting to treat them. 
Once you cure them, though, it's really important to remember a couple of things. So one, hep C antibody remains positive. It can remain positive for life. Um, so once positive, never useful. It's a little bit like a PPD, right? Like you're not repeating a positive PPD. You can't use that test anymore. So don't count on a hep C uh, antibody to tell you that someone's been reinfected. Screen them with RNA. So if someone has ongoing risk factors for reinfection with hepatitis C, um, then you need to check them with RNA. And then people always say, well, how often? Well, depends on how often you think they're at risk. Usually I check people yearly. Sometimes I check them more often. Sometimes I don't check them at all if they really have, they had a known risk factor and that's just not a part of their life anymore. Talk to them about reinfection, injection drug use, and um, uh, uh, men having sex with men. Um, heterosexual transmission can occur. It is very uncommon. The AASLD guidelines don't even recommend barrier uh, contraception in discordant couples with hep C. I will say it's easier to get um, hep C in a heterosexual partnerships if HIV is in the mix in the male or the female partner. So I do counsel my heterosexual uh, uh, hep C patients in discordant partnerships about that. But in general, the sexual transmission is largely driven by uh, men having sex with men. And I would say that many of my patients who are at at risk who, are, who have hep C who are MSM do not know this and they're very surprised when I tell them this because for a long time I think there was a lot of misinformation or people didn't believe that this was a route of transmission. So make sure your patients know this. It's a sexually transmitted disease. So if you're testing them for uh, syphilis and for gonorrhea and chlamydia and you're worried if they're a PrEP patient, we've absolutely seen people get hep C um, in, in, as an STI in the setting of PrEP um, or other uh, high-risk sexual settings. So if they're cirrhotic, right, and you, you're going to screen them for cirrhosis at the time um, that you're deciding whether well, what medication to give them, you need to continue to screen them for hepatocellular carcinoma. So remember, in hepatitis C, we only screen people for liver cancer if they have cirrhosis. Um, the good news is, is if they get cured, 50% um, or more people will see regression of their cirrhosis, but the risk for HCC doesn't go down to normal. So we just haven't gotten smart enough in this field to know it, your risk goes down, but it doesn't go down to normal. And the hope is, is that in the next, you know, five to 10 years, we'll get a lot smarter and be able to say, this person needs ongoing screening and this person doesn't, but we don't know that yet. So for now, once cirrhotic, you always need to be screened for hepatocellular carcinoma. Um, and uh, that's with every six month um, ultrasound with or without an AFP uh, being added on. So you've got to establish their fibrosis at the time that you're gonna go ahead and treat them. How do you do that? We can usually use non-invasive testing, which is not perfect, but it's pretty good. Things like an APRI or a FIB4, which I like because they're free. They come with the testing that you already do in AST um, and platelet count, and you can look at those online. Um, there are commercial tests like a fibroshore. You can do an ultrasound or transient elastography, which is also known as a fibroscan. I think the other important point of this is that I've seen sometimes providers go a little nuts with checking their cirrhosis status repeatedly after being cured. And it's nice to see, and patients really like it, but you're not going to do anything about it. In other words, if someone, I've seen people's, you know, fiber scans get better, and you all feel great about it, but you're not going to not screen them for hepatocellular carcinoma. So maybe don't waste the money to do that, except that it makes you feel better that you see this happening. You can just tell your patients, look, 50% of people with cirrhosis will, will get better, um, uh, and maybe more over time. Okay. Acute hepatitis C, um, so just a reminder um, what acute hepatitis C is, this is people usually within the first six months of being exposed to hepatitis and the way that it can manifest is with elevated uh, liver function tests. Sometimes people are symptomatic, they can look like they have a viral infection, be achy like a flu-like illness. Sometimes they can be frankly jaundiced. They can have an antibody that's negative and a viral load that's positive depending on when you've caught them. So if someone is at risk, particularly if they're you know highly sexually active, you're treating them for their syphilis, and their gonorrhea, and then you notice, oh, wow, your LFTs are up a little bit. Keep hepatitis C in the mix, because if you don't think about it, you're not going to diagnose it. And the antibody can be negative for the first three months. Um, so that's a time that you want to send an RNA, because the RNAs tend to be very high, and that's a time of high infectivity. So we've had a lot of questions, though. Well, gosh, what should we do when we diagnose someone with acute hepatitis? Should we wait and see if they spontaneously clear? Um, because we know that a proportion of people will be cleared on their own. Or should we just go ahead and treat them? So we have a little bit more data that I wanted to share with you about this, um, about monitoring for spontaneous clearance. Um, so uh, the Europeans have taken a lot of data and pulled this together into an algorithm. And what they found is that, let's see if I can get this one to work. 
that if you, when you confirm the initial diagnosis of acute hepatitis C, and again, remember that you need an RNA um, really uh, uh, for this, uh, and you can send an antibody as well. They say if you repeat the hep C RNA um, in four weeks, right, so it's elevated, you've confirmed that they're viremic, and that they have not dropped by two log um, at that point in time, their likelihood of spontaneously clearing is quite low. Um, so at that point in time, the easel guidelines are actually to go ahead and start um, treating people. If they have declined, then you repeat at week 12, if they remain positive, go ahead and treat them. So this really shortens things. If you look at the U.S. guidelines, they still say wait up to six months before you can go ahead, um, go ahead and consider treating someone. Um, so I've really moved more in this direction of saying, gosh, let's give this four weeks um, uh, to see if you're going in the right direction and then go ahead and get you cleared. And you may ask, well, what are those numbers? We had a good study from Croy um, where they looked to see, well, how many people actually do clear? And they had 11% of patients who cleared um, with acute hepatitis C who were HIV positive. These numbers can vary. It might be a little bit higher, but the majority of patients are not going to clear on their own, so you can tell them that. But remember, then, a couple of pieces with this. If they do clear, you need two negative hep C RNAs to know that they're cleared, separated over time. One of the characteristics of new H hepatitis C infection, particularly over the first year, is that the viral loads can really widely vary, and they can go down to undetectable and become uh, detectable again. So you can't tell someone that they're cured and, you know, spontaneously cleared unless you have two negative viral loads separated by time. How much time? I don't know. At least a month, sometimes three months. I usually just do it when, when they come back to see me. So uh, I think this is sort of a shift in the thinking. The U.S. guidelines have not caught up to this, um, but it's certainly very, very reasonable to do. An even bigger shift in this thinking is, well, why wait? Um, so I think that there is a mounting uh, uh, group of people who argue for, well, you diagnose someone with hepatitis C. A, they, they got the infection, so they were at, at risk of not only getting the infection, but of forward transmission through whatever behavior um, is there. So there's a, a reasonably robust argument in some populations to just go ahead and treat them. And who would you really want to treat um, uh, right off the bat? Those that you're at high risk of forward transmission, um, so you're really worried that you know they're in high-risk sexual partnerships or they're sharing injection drugs um, and aren't using uh, clean needles. Um, someone that you already have liver disease and you're worried about them, they have cirrhosis for another reason and you don't want to give them a chance to do worse or you think you might not see them again and this is your moment they're here they're ready to do this you can get them the drugs in a few days they're engaged in care with you and they have a history of sort of falling off the radar or going somewhere else um, the treatment is generally the same um, so we give you know uh, you can give eight weeks of GP there are some data to shorten soft lead to eight weeks um, but again that's not typically what we're using anymore so in general you treat them with the same um, regimen but I would just advise you if you have someone with acute hep C in front of you it's not wrong to offer them therapy now if they meet some of these criteria where you really think you might not see them again you're worried that they're gonna have forward transmission you're worried that they're gonna infect their partner um, and, that, and that they're not gonna be able to, to keep themselves unsafe and a lot of folks have done this a question that comes up a lot is well, what about post-exposure prophylaxis what if someone is exposed occupationally sexually or through injection drug use and they really are worried and think they have a good chance of having gotten the disease um, there really right now is not an indication um, for PEP um, mostly because we can pretty much guarantee that we can get people cured if they do have an infection um, that can make people feel very uncomfortable at the time I would monitor them carefully but we really don't have any data to, uh, to support PEP at this point okay I'm going to move on and talk about um, NASH and NAFLD. Um, so NAFLD is um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and that's different from NASH, which is non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. NAFLD um, is very, very common. Um, we see NAFLD um, in up to 30% of the U.S. population, which is pretty shocking, but that means that there's a certain amount of fat in their liver. Um, and we think that it's probably similar in HIV positives um, to HIV uh, negatives. Um, and that's simple steatosis that doesn't actually cause disease. But the tricky part here is figuring out who will then go and get NASH, which is steatohepatitis, which can uh, go on and um, become um, cirrhosis. So about 3 to 10 percent um, of, of, of those with, uh, uh, with NAFLD will go on to get uh, NASH. Um, we think this is higher in HIV positive patients, probably due to a higher risk for things like metabolic syndrome 
syndrome and some of the older drugs that we used to use that were associated with fatty liver. And then what about frank cirrhosis? Um, this can occur in up to 2% of people with fatty liver disease. We don't know if that's higher in HIV, um, but we're certainly seeing a signal that, that NASH itself um, may be enriched for in our HIV-positive um, patients. And whether that's the direct pathogenic effect of HIV versus the metabolic complications, I don't know that we're going to be able to parse that out. So how do you know if someone has NAFLD? Um, so one, you have to show that they have fat in their liver, and usually we do that by imaging. And then you have to show that it's non-alcoholic, right? So that you exclude heavy alcohol use, viral hepatitis, and then other causes um, by the clinical scenario. And this is always a little bit of a headache, and I'll tell you what you're supposed to do, and then I'll tell you what I usually do. But so you're supposed to send autoimmune hepatitis panel, alpha-1 antitrypsin, Wilson's, and hemochromatosis. This is what the liver docs want you to do. I think there's some problems with the autoimmune hepatitis in that ANA and IgG are often elevated in our HIV patients. That's nonspecific. So don't rush to saying, oh my gosh, now they have autoimmune hepatitis. I can't believe I, I missed the boat there. It's reasonable to check, and if the levels are very high, um, then you could certainly uh, uh, go down the road of thinking about whether or not you'd want to get um, a biopsy there. Um, alpha-1 antitrypsin is a very rare disease. I'll leave it up to you about whether you guys uh, want to check, uh, check for that. And I usually do just do the one-time check for Wilson's and hemochromatosis, um, of which I've seen exactly zero cases. So I'm not sure that that's the best use of our healthcare dollars, but if we're going forward to try to biopsy someone, often the, the liver docs do want them. Imaging, if you get an ultrasound, it's nonspecific, but it will say things like hyperechoic, uh, fatty-looking liver. You can do a fiber scan if you have access to that in your healthcare setting, but remember you need to use the M-probe. The M-probe is a probe for obesity, um, and so the, uh, which they didn't have till they marketed the fiber scan in the United States, and then they realized that they had to come up with an M-probe um, for that because our population was so obese because this originally came from, um, from Europe. Um, so just make sure that they, that they have that because it actually doesn't work as well. And the gold standard is actually MRE, uh, uh, so MRI elastography is a non-invasive uh, gold standard, um, and uh, many uh, institutions don't have this, but just to know that there is a way to, to, to really get a good gold standard without doing a biopsy. What about non-invasive markers that I mentioned before? You absolutely can use these, and I've more and more been trying to use on a routine basis this NAFLD fibrosis score, which has been well-validated for um, uh, NASH. And basically what it tries to tell you using markers that you already have available, so age, BMI, blood glucose, which doesn't have to be fasting, AST, platelets, and albumin, it, it gives you sort of an, uh, a guess of how bad their fibrosis severity is, and it can help you guide whom to biopsy. Like all of these non-invasive markers, it's good at either end of the spectrum. So if your score is really low, very unlikely to have fibrosis, very high, much more likely to have it in the middle, eh, what can you do? You, you don't know. But it's a marker that you can test over time, and it has been validated specifically for the fatty liver disease population. So I will share that with you, and if you Google it, it, it will come up, and there's the reference. So the trickiest part for me is really who to biopsy, because if 30% of people have fatty liver in your clinic, right, you do not want to be doing a liver biopsy in one out of three patients that you see, nor is that indicated, because clearly they're not all, you know, dying of cirrhosis related to their NASH, and many, many of them don't have NASH. So you do the, you, you start this out with the elevated LFTs and then steatosis on imaging. You ask them, make sure that there's not alcohol here. You do your basic workup that we talked about. You see if you can make things change by having weight loss and exercise, um, which are really the, the core parts of this, and we'll talk about this in a moment. And then if they have higher risk factors, which again, I think doesn't help to narrow it down that much, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, older age, if they have a high AST to ALT ratio, certainly if they have decreased albumin or platelets, which suggests that they might have more advanced fibrosis, um, you would consider doing a liver biopsy in them. Where does HIV fit into this risk factor uh, ratio? We don't really know, but we do know that the uh, rate of NASH is higher in all comers um, if they have HIV versus those who don't have HIV. I think I under-biopsy my patients. I suspect everybody in this room probably does too. And I think the reason that we under-biopsy is that we don't have good treatments um, for NASH. So if I'm going to put someone through this, I want to tell them, and then I will, you know, how will it change your management? So I'm going to talk about what our managements are that we currently have. And I think this is really going to change because the whole field of uh, NASH, we hope, is going to really be different with some of the new agents that we have coming down the pike. But we do have treatments that are available. So I've been trying to be better about having a frank, uh, not being such a nihilist about doing liver biopsies um, um, in, in patients because they actually are pretty well tolerated. And you do want to know if they have NASH. And the only way you can really know if they have NASH is to put a, put a, uh, a needle in there. So who would you treat? 
if they have true NASH, and certainly they have NASH with fibrosis, advanced fibrosis, or NASH-related cirrhosis, if they just have plain old fatty liver, you don't treat them because it doesn't get better, and this is not something that, that it doesn't get better with the treatments. You, um, fatty liver can get better with weight loss, um, but there is not um, a, a, a reason to use these medications. Those who don't have biopsy-confirmed NASH or steatosis alone, you should focus on you know cardiovascular risk modification um, as well as weight loss because uh, that's what's driving the fat that's in the, their liver. So what can we treat? Number one, okay, weight loss. And the goal is really 10% or greater weight loss. That's a, that's a tall order. There have been some benefits with 5 to 7%, but, you know, I just like to lay it out there with my patients. This is, what, this is what we're going for. But even a little bit of weight loss can make a difference. You want to treat their diabetes, their hypertension, and their dyslipidemia, which we're going to do anyway. And then really most of our data comes from the PIVINS trial, which compared vitamin E to pioglitazone in individuals who did not have diabetes. They also did not have HIV, by the way. They were not cirrhotic, but they had fatty liver disease. And so what they found in this study, um, first they looked at histological improvement. Um, and the blue is vitamin E. This this is placebo, and this is pioglitazone, right? And you could see that there was um, uh, uh, more improvement. The most improvement in hist histologic improvement occurred in vitamin E. And this is the changes in, like, the ballooning hepatocytes that they saw, but not the actual fibrosis. So a little bit of a better signal with vitamin E versus pioglitazone. And what about histologic resolution? Who actually had the fibrosis get better? It was not a statistically significant difference in vitamin E, but there was a difference in the pioglitazone. Well, why don't we give these medicines to everyone? right? This is a randomized controlled trial. Well, neither of these are great medicine for those of you who know who've used them in other settings. So vitamin E didn't improve fibrosis. It improved the histological uh, markers, but it didn't improve maybe the thing we care the most about. It may increase, ble increase bleeding. It may increase your risk of uh, cardiovascular disease, maybe prostate cancer, and one very worrisome study that said, well, maybe people die more. We don't have data in diabetes. Um, so you can consider this in non-diabetics in whom the benefits outweigh the risks. I do have some folks on, on vitamin um, E, but this is the reason actually that I biopsy people because I think a biopsy, I want to really know what I'm dealing with here. And rather than put someone on vitamin E, which, you know, you're really having a risk-benefit conversation, you need to know what the disease is that you're treating, and it's a much it's not a big deal to get a biopsy um, uh, if you're going to be considering this because you really shouldn't be giving people vitamin E unless you know. Pioglitazone, oh, this is a challenging drug that we used to use lots for diabetes and have really moved away from it. It increases weight. Um, so some of this is just fluid, um, but some of it is fat. Um, it has led to congestive heart failure exacerbations, which is certainly problematic. And you told people to lose weight, and now you're having them gain weight. So even though it's approved for use in diabetics and non-diabetics, I think in general um, people are only really using this in diabetics who already have um, NASH, and I think we can do a whole lot better. Um, I have used almost no pioglitazone because I just find it to be a problematic drug, but I know other folks, uh, other folks do it. The good news, that was sort of depressing, but the good news is we have a lot of other good agents that are under investigation and are coming down the pike. I don't know that any of these or all of these will work, but hopefully some will. So beta-cholic acid has had a lot of experience. Oh, I know, I gotta move on, okay. Um, and then what, what I will tell you, what's not effective, metformin and fish oil. They really wanted those to work, they really didn't, okay. Um, so this is my last, I'm going to skip this audience response question. How about that? That's good. So I'm going to end with the hep B vaccine. Um, there's a new hep B vaccine, which is exciting. Um, it has an adjuvant to improve response, and it's given at week zero and week four, as we heard before, uh, earlier, as opposed to um, uh, uh, three uh, uh, injections. Um, it's only at, uh, uh, two injections and a much shorter um, time period. I don't know about you, but that six-month injection often just I forget, they forget, it tends just to go away. It's called um, Heplisav, and so this is just a, um, a uh, uh, excerpt from the medical letter, um, which I really like, uh, because it tends to digest all of this information. And so the, the areas where Heplisav looks like um, it worked a little better, so these are just garden variety patients age 18 to 55 um, and 18 to 60, and it looked like it looked maybe a little bit better in these patients. But where you started to see a real difference are in people 40 to 60. This was 90% versus 70%, so it was 20% more effective. And in diabetic patients, 90 versus 65%. So diabetic patients and in patients who are older, we tend to see um, that uh, these are the folks. It's not that Heplisav is so great. These are good response rates. It's, this is where the standard um, Hep B dosing tends to fall apart. Same thing here. If you look at the um, response rate here uh, uh, going up in age compared to standard uh, dosing, you can see it goes down to 70% in those 60 to uh, 70 years of age, and you really are preserving a good response rate here. Um, you'll notice there's no HIV data here because we have no HIV data here. 
So this is who needs this? You know, we're always trying to tell you something new. And this says the ocean now with sea salt, right? Um, so do you really need a new Hep B vaccine? There's more injection site reactions because of the adjuvant, so something to think about. It's a little bit more expensive, so about 50 bucks more expensive than standard Hep B vaccines. It, we don't have any data in HIV, but the folks that I would consider this in is they're people who are older or diabetic or both um, or more immunosuppressed, and that may be HIV. Those in a hurry who need to get vaccinated soon or that are at risk for non-completion, it's two doses at zero and four weeks, and so you can just get done with it. And I think the million-dollar question here is, gosh, what about those pesky people that we've vaccinated a million times and that it never takes? Will this work in them? Um, and we don't know the answer to that. ACTG is doing a study uh, that we hope will go forward um, to answer this question, um, but we don't know. It stands to reason that it might work, but, but we just don't have that data. TAF, I'll just end with this, works for Hep B. Um, so when you're switching your patients from TDF to TAF, um, it works fine. So you don't need to uh, worry about that. That's a question that comes up a lot. So I'm going to go ahead and end there. These are resources which are in um, your slides, and thank you for letting me go over a little bit. It's, it's great. I think I, I need to apologize because I think that you had a lot of information and deserve more time. So it wasn't you. It was us as a program uh, committee. So I apologize to you. No, no, it's, it's me. It's, I'll, I'll take a full ownership to that. He's breaking up. <laughs> so anyway, um, so uh, I think I have time for really one sort of gen more generic question, trying to combine the three excellent questions, many of which have multiple parts. And I'm going to start with the liver biopsy, because we worry about sampling errors. And so all the tests that you listed, whether it's uh, ultrasound, you know, the MRE, which requires basically one special site and usually one technician who's very competent in doing that, which is not available to all of us, versus all the different, you know, fiber scans, fiber tests, all these kind of things, you know, we get the conflicting results. Do you err in terms of the screening for uh, hepatocellular you know, carcinoma, on the, of being conservative and say, if any test makes me worried, whether it's a nodular ultrasound, but the biopsy didn't show or whatever, how do you manage the uncertainties with all these different tests? So I would say that there's two specific areas where that applies. One is in picking GP, right? I told you eight weeks if they're non-serotic and 12 weeks if they're serotic. Boy, if I have really any markers that are telling me they're serotic, I just give them 12 weeks, right? Because w w there's no harm. 12 weeks used to be like super short. Now we think that that's long. So I do that. Hepatocellular carcinoma screening, I might dig in a little more if I'm not sure because you are committing someone to getting ultrasounds right now for the rest of their life. So I might repeat one of the tests or really try to get clear in my mind, boy, do I think that you have F3 or F4 disease. And really the recommendation now is to, to screen people with F3 disease as well as F4 if they have um, hep C. Um, biopsy, I usually believe, but we al almost never do biopsies for for any of these indications except for, for NASH. And remember, for NASH, we're not just doing it to see if they're serotic. We're actually doing it to see if there's histological changes that show that they have steatohepatitis, not just simple fatty liver. So that's a different reason. So in general, we really don't biopsy patients to look just for cirrhosis. Um, so, I mean, I hope that sort of summarize, I mean, you know, summarizes some of these questions because, again, you know, it has to do with the sensitivity of some of these markers. Do you order multiple, do you have one particular marker non-invasive that you really like, that you rely on more and then get familiar with? Or if you have uncertainty right. in terms of staging, do you go to a different marker and, you know? Well, it, it used to be that uh, if you were trying to get the, the insurance to pay for it, I took any marker that showed they had fibrosis because that's what proved that I could get that. But apparently, we don't have to do that anymore, and that was for F2. Look, there are limitations with, with these. I think certainly if you're getting a strong signal that someone has cirrhosis by one of these markers, like... And you need to know your institution. I don't buy our ultrasounds at all where I work um, unless they say that's a nodular liver because they call everybody, oh, early corkscrewing. I, what, I think I have early corkscrewing. I don't know what that means. So you have to kind of know your institution and what, and what you're dealing with. So I'm hoping that, Anna, you can stick around for maybe a few minutes. So if people have individual questions, I think there were some really excellent questions. But I think in the interest of time, we're going to move on. So yeah. I want to... Do you want to tell... Yeah, I'm going to do that. So uh, number one, um, uh, we... We encourage all of you, whether you're looking for um, educational credit, to fill out the evaluation, because we do look at those evaluations for planning for next year. Um, to get CME, um, it is for the physicians, it is required you fill out the evaluation. I suspect for all the other individuals looking for 
pharmacy credits and all that, the evaluation is, is critical. Um, and so it's a pretty, the process is going to improve in a couple of months, but for right now, what you need to do is log into the isausa.org website, log into your site, click My Activities, and you will find the relative activity, and then you follow the instructions. And at the end of all this, please submit. If you go through everything and click all the right buttons and then don't submit, there, it doesn't get into the system. Um, and so that is probably the most important thing. It's a little confusing for some people. Um, it is in your um, syllabus about how to do this, but um, you, um, you, the, you can request your certificate. Um, it will be logged into the system forever. So you can go back in uh, six years, presumably, and get that certificate if you need another copy of it. You can go ahead and request it now, um, and I think that that's an important thing. Um, but please do this um, uh, no later than, do all this no later than 30 days. To try to get everything done in the next 28 days. That gives you two days leeway, just like the fiber scan and your home sign. Um, and, and you can get, also get MOC for those who have internal medicine um, uh, uh, felt, um, certification, and you can get credit for the ongoing certification activities. I think that the instructions are there as well. They're a bit more complicated as well, but this once you complete that request, it gets um, forwarded to the American Board of Internal Medicine, and they handle it from there. Um, so that actually, but it does get forwarded electronically, so once again, you can get credit if you're trying to build up your MLC um, uh, credits as well in all this. Um, pharmacy credits also, there are a number of pharmacists in the room, and you can get credit for this course or the whole day's course, so please follow the instructions for that. Um, once again, I want to thank um, all of you for being here and for the questions you've asked and for helping to mold this meeting into what I think was interesting for me and I hope for all of you. I also would like to th thank the faculty, those who are still remaining <laughs> for really, I think, a, a series of outstanding uh, presentations that I think help further our uh, goals uh, both for each talk, but also for the day. Um, and you know, again, to sort of reinforce the idea that, that all of you know that there are questions you still have for your patients and to try to encourage us to find answers over whether some of these vaccines that are newly available work and whether the settings to use them in, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I would like to um, uh, thank the ISA USA for sponsoring this um, event and also thank the staff. Um, I, you know, I've worked with them for now 24 years and this is a new venue, and I know that some of, uh, there have been some glitches in terms of some of the audiovisual and all that, but they've been working very hard and diligently and paid as much attention, if not more, than any one of us, including me, to every word of the presentation to try to optimize this experience. Your feedback about this is necessary. We've gotten a lot of it already, but without this meeting and the attention of every member of the ISA, IAS USA staff, we couldn't put on this meeting, and this meeting would not have been as successful. If you have complaints about the chicken sandwiches, don't talk to me about that. Okay? <laughs> and uh, lastly, we'd like to thank, again, the commercial um, sponsors of this um, uh, meeting today for their sort of um, unrestricted grants for education. Um, and again, um, if you find that you feel that there has been some commercial um, uh, input that is not appropriate, please let us know so we can be sensitive to that and try to guarantee that this is actually free of commercial bias. So once again, thank you very much. We're still getting out a little early. We hope to see you next year.